Chapter 6 Who's Your Daddies? Quote In view of the frequent occurrences of modern domestic groups that do not consist of or contain an exclusive pair-bonded father and mother, I cannot see why anyone should insist that our ancestors were reared in monogamous nuclear families and that pair bonding is more natural than other arrangements." Unquote. By Marvin Harris. The birds and the bees are different in the Amazon. There a woman not only can be a little pregnant, most are. Each of the societies we're about to discuss shares a belief in what scientists call partable paternity. These groups have a novel conception of conception. A fetus is made of accumulated semen. Anthropologists Stephen Beckerman and Paul Valentin explained, Pregnancy is viewed as a matter of degree, not clearly distinguished from gestation. All sexually active women are a little pregnant. Over time, semen accumulates in the womb. A fetus is formed. Further acts of intercourse follow, and additional semen causes the fetus to grow more. Unquote. Were a woman to stop having sex when her period stopped, people in these cultures believes the fetus would stop developing. This understanding of how semen forms a child leads to some mighty interesting conclusions regarding quote-unquote responsible sexual behavior. Like mothers everywhere, a woman from these societies is eager to give her child every possible advantage in life. To this end, she'll typically seek out sex with an assortment of men. She'll solicit contributions from the best hunters, the best storytellers, the funniest, the kindest, the best looking, the strongest, and so on, in the hopes her child will literally absorb the essence of each. Anthropologists report similar understandings of conception and fetal development among many South American societies, ranging from simple hunter-gatherers to horticulturalists. A partial list would include the Ashi, the Arawete, the Bari, the Canela, the Kashinua, the Kuripikao, the Eseeha, the Kayapo, the Kulina, the Matisse, the Mehinaku, the Pieroa, the Piraha, the Sequoia, the Siwana, the Warao, the Yanomami, and the Yekwana. Societies from Venezuela to Bolivia. This is no ethnographic curiosity, either a strange idea being passed among related cultures. The same understanding is found among cultural groups that show no evidence of contact from for millennia, nor is partable paternity limited to South America. For example, 
The Lucy of Papua New Guinea also hold that fetal development depends on multiple acts of intercourse, often with different men. Even today, the younger Lucy, who have some sense of the modern understanding of reproduction, agree that a person can have more than one father. As Beckerman and Valentine explain, it is difficult to come to any conclusion except that partable paternity is an ancient folk belief capable of supporting effective families, families that provide satisfactory paternal care of children and manage the successful rearing of children to adulthood." Unquote. When an anthropologist working in Paraguay asked his Ashi subjects to identify their fathers, he was presented with a mathematical puzzle that could be solved only with a vocabulary lesson. The 321 Ashe claimed to have over 600 fathers. Who is your daddy's? It turns out that the Ashe distinguish four different kinds of fathers. According to the anthropologist Kim Hill, the four types of fathers are Miare, the father who put it in, Proare, the fathers who mixed it, Mombare, those who spilled it out, and Bikaware, the fathers who provided the child's essence. Rather than being shunned as bastards or sons of bitches, children of multiple fathers benefit from having more than one man who takes a special interest in them. Anthropologists have calculated that their chances of survival rather surviving childhood are often significantly better than those of children in the same societies with just one recognized father. Far from being enraged at having his genetic legacy called into question, a man in these societies is likely to feel gratitude to other men for pitching in to help create and then care for a stronger baby. Far from being blinded by jealousy, as a standard narrative predicts, Men in these societies find themselves bound to one another by shared paternity for the children they fathered together. As Beckerman explains, in the worst case scenario, this system may provide extra security for the child. Quote, you know that if you die, there's some other man who has a residual obligation to care for at least one of your children. So looking the other way, or even giving your blessing when your wife takes a lover and is, is the only insurance you can buy. Unquote. Lest any reader feel tempted to file this sort of behavior under BAD, bizarre and distant, similar examples can be found quite close to home. The Joy of SEX Understanding is a lot of like sex. It's got a practical purpose, but that's not why people do it normally. By Frank Oppenheimer. Desmond Morris spent months observing a British pro soccer team in the late 1970s and early 1980s, later publishing his thoughts in a book called The Soccer Tribe. 
as his title suggests, Morris found the behavior of the teammates to be strikingly similar to what he'd encountered among tribal groups in previous research. He noted two behaviors particularly salient in both contexts, group leveling and non-possessiveness. Quote, the first thing you notice when footballers talk among themselves, Morris wrote, is the speed of their wit. Their humor is often cruel and is used to deflate any teammate who shows the slightest signs of egotism. Unquote. But echoes of prehistoric egalitarianism reverberate beyond ego deflation in the locker room, extending to sexuality as well. Unquote. If one of them scores sexually, he is not possessive but is only too happy to see his teammates succeed with the same girl." Unquote. While this may strike some as unfeeling, Morris assured his readers that his lack of jealousy was, quote, simply a measure of the extent to which selfishness is suppressed between teammates, both on the field and off it. Unquote. For professional athletes, musicians, and their most enthusiastic female fans, as well as both male and female members of any foraging societies overlapping, intersecting sexual relationships strengthen group cohesion and can offer a measure of security in an uncertain world. Sometimes, perhaps most of the time, human sex isn't just about pleasure or reproduction. A casual approach to sexual relationship as a community, rather in a community, of adults can have important social functions, extending far beyond mere physical gratification. Let's try putting this liquid libido into dry, academic terms. We hypothesize that socio-erotic exchanges, SEX for short, strengthen the bonds among individuals in small-scale nomadic societies and apparently other highly interdependent groups, forming a crucial durable web of affection, affiliation, and mutual obligation. In evolutionary terms, it would be hard to overstate the importance of such networks. After all, it was primarily such flexible, adaptive social groups and the feedback loop of brain growth and language capacities that both allowed and resulted from them that enabled our slow, weak, and generally unimpressive species to survive and eventually dominate the entire planet. Without frequent SEX socio-economical exchange, It is doubtful that foraging bands could have maintained social equilibrium and fecundity over the millennia. Socio-economical exchange were crucial in binding adults into groups that cared community for children of obscure or shared paternity, each child likely to related to most or all of the men in the group, if not a father, certainly an uncle, cousin. Because these interlocking relationships are so crucial to social cohesion, 
Opting out can cause problems. Writing of the maddest people, anthropologist Philip Erickson confirms, quote, Plural paternity is more than a theoretical possibility. Extramarital sex is not only widely practiced and usually tolerated in many respects, it also appears mandatory. Married or not, one has a moral duty to respond to the sexual advances of opposite-sex cross-cousins, real or classificatory, rather classificatory, under pains of being labeled stingy of one's genitals, a breach of Mattis ethics far more serious than plain infidelity. Unquote. Being labeled a sexual cheapskate is no laughing matter, apparently. Erickson writes of one young man who cowered in the anthropologist's hut for hours, hiding from his horny cousin, whose advances he couldn't legitimately reject if she tracked him down. Even more serious, during maddest tattooing festivals, having sex with one's customary partners is expressly forbidden under threat of extreme punishment, even death. But if it's true that socio-economical exchanges played a central role in maintaining prehistoric social cohesion, we should find remnants of such shamelessly libidinous behavior throughout the world, past and present. We do. Among the Mojave, women were famous for their licentious habits and disinclination to stick with one man. Caesar, yes, that Caesar, was scandalized to note that an Iron Age, that in Iron Age Britain, quote, ten and even twelve have wives common to them, and particularly brothers among brothers, unquote. During his three months in Tahiti, in 1769, Captain James Cook and his crew found that Tahitians, quote, gratified every appetite and passion before witnesses, unquote. In an account of Cook's voyage first published in 1773, John Hawksworth wrote of a young man nearly six feet high performing the rites of Venus with a little girl about 12, 11 to 12 years old of age. <clears throat> Before several of our people and a great number of narratives, rather natives, without the least sense of its being indecent or improper, but as appeared in perfect conformity to the custom of the place. Unquote. Some of the older islander women who were observing this amorous display apparently called out instructions to the girl, although Cook tells us, quote, Young as she was, she did not seem much to stand in need of them. Unquote. Samuel Wallace, another ship captain who spent time in Tahiti, reported, quote, The women in general are very handsome, some really great beauties, yet their virtue was not proof against a nail. Unquote. The Tahitians' fascination with iron resulted in a de facto exchange of a single nail for a sexual tryst with a local woman. By the time Wallace set sail, most of his men were sleeping on deck as there were no nails left from
from which to hang their hammocks. There is a yam harvest festival in the present day Trobriand Islands, in which groups of young women roam the islands, raping men from outside their own village, purportedly biting off their eyebrows if the men did not satisfy them. Ancient Greece celebrated sexual license in the festivals of Aphrodisia, Dionysia, and Linnea. In Rome, members of the cult of Bacchus hosted orgies no fewer than five, five times per month. While many islands in the South Pacific are still famous for their openness in unconstrained sexuality, despite the concerted efforts of generations of missionaries preaching the morality of shame. Many modern-day Brazilians let it all hang out during carnival, when they participate in a rite of consensual non-marital sex known as sacanagem, that makes the goings-on in New Orleans or Las Vegas look tame. Though the eager participation of women in these activities may surprise some readers, it has long been clear that the sources of female sexual reticence are more cultural than biological. Despite what Darwin and others have supposed, over 50 years ago, sex researcher Cleland Ford and Frank Beach declared, quote, In those societies which have no double standard in sexual matters, and in which a variety of liaisons are permitted, the women avail themselves as eagerly of their opportunity as do the men, unquote. Nor do the females. Of our closest primate cousins offer much reason to believe the human female should be sexually reluctant due to purely biological concerns. Instead, primatologist Meredith Small has noted that female primates are highly attracted to novelty in mating. Unfamiliar males appear to attract females more than known males with any other characteristic a male might offer. High status, large size, coloration, frequent grooming, hairy chest, gold chains, pinky ring, whatever. Small writes, quote, The only consistent interest seem seen among the general primate population is an interest in novelty and variety. In fact, she reports, the search for the unfamiliar is documented as a female preference, more often than is any other characteristic our human eyes can perceive. Unquote. Franz de Waal could have been referring to any of the previously mentioned Amazonian societies when he wrote that the male has no idea which copulations may result in conception and which may not. Almost any child growing up in the group could be his if one had to, be, had to design a social system in which fatherhood remained obscure. One could hardly do a better job than Mother Nature did with this society. Unquote. Though DeWalt's words are applicable to any of the many societies who engage in ritualized extra-pair sex, he was in fact writing of the bonobo, those underscoring 
the sexual continuity linking the three most closely related apes, chimps, bonobos, and their conflicted human cousins.